Senate at large, I'm Leonard Lopez. Jamie Suskind notes that not long ago, the tech industry was widely admired and the Internet was regarded as a tonic for freedom and democracy, but not anymore. Every day, there are reports of racist algorithms, data links, and social media platforms that promote lies and hate. In his latest book, The Digital Republic on Freedom and Democracy in the 21st Century, Mr. Suskind asks whether freedom and democracy can survive in a world where the central problem of the modern Internet is its unaccountable power. It's published by Pegasus Books and brings British barrister Jamie Suskind to our show now. Welcome. Thank you for having me. To navigate the network, we must follow certain rules, including the use of passwords. Aren't passwords good because they provide security? Of course they are. I've got nothing against passwords. My book is about a much bigger uh, set of issues that arise out of digital technology. The point is that when we interact with a digital technology, whatever it happens to be, we have no choice but to follow the rules that are coded into it. And so those rules, for instance, on a social media platform may decree what may be said on who may be set on who may say it. They may determine which content gets amplified and which content gets silenced. The truth is that those people, those software engineers who write those rules are increasingly becoming social engineers. Mm. I use the password example in the book because it's a good example of how technologies don't negotiate. They don't compromise. You can't get a system to do something it's not programmed to do. So if you try to send a tweet that's more than 280 characters, it's just not going to send no matter how much you'd like it to. And the same is true whenever we interact with digital technology in all of our actions and our interactions and our transactions. But before we get to the problems, uh, I, I thought that I'd point out that for most of us, I assume, Facebook posts, at least this is in my case, uh, there are their birthday announcements, pictures of people we may or may not know, their pets, where they're vacationing, cartoons, forwarded newspaper articles, nothing particularly inflammatory. Where is all the troubling activity taking place? Uh, well, I'm afraid statistically and empirically, that isn't most people's experience of Facebook, or rather it's not their exclusive experience. It's true that we use it for socializing and seeing family and the like. But it's also true that an enormous amount of political and um, public affairs style debates and the like and the sharing of news and information about the world now takes place on social media platforms, whether it is Facebook or Twitter hmm. or the like. So, for instance, the single most shared article on Facebook, the single most shared one in the first three months of 2021 was not a harmless article about people's dogs, but a, but a piece of misinformation about the coronavirus. And so these platforms are not just places where we post photos of ourselves in our swimming trunks. Uh, they are places where increasingly the deliberation that we rely on for a democratic society takes place. In December 2012, as, as part of an initiative uh, announced three years earlier by Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook unveiled new terms and conditions that it wanted to impose on users. They were invited to vote yes or no on whether they should be enacted, and 88% voted no. Uh, but hadn't Zuckerberg imposed a precondition to that decision that, uh, <laughs> that made right. it less binding? 
That's right. So I, I, don't, I can't remember the exact statistic, but basically... It was Facebook 30% of all... It only was binding if 30% of all users <laughs> took part. That's right. And as I recall, it would have required more voters than the current state of India possesses. You know, yeah, the most 300 million people. In the world. Yeah. So what Facebook basically said was, yeah, you can vote on things, but votes are only valid if this percentage of people participate. And of course, there was no way that that percentage of people were going to participate. So the the exercise turned out to be something of a, I don't want to say a sham, but maybe a farce. And over six, just over 650,000 people participated. So Zuckerberg declared that in future, Facebook would decide what would happen without regard to user opinion. Right. And listen, you know, the whole point of my book is it's important not to fixate on Facebook or Zuckerberg or whatever or whoever happens to be running the show at a particular time. Because what I try to do in the book is analyze at a higher level what it is about digital technologies that happens to make them so powerful, that happens to give them the ability to affect the quality of our democracy, that gives them the ability to decide how much freedom we do or do not have. And that analysis, I believe, will apply not just to Facebook, to, but to whatever comes after Facebook, and, and not just to Mark Zuckerberg, but to whatever comes after Mark Zuckerberg. Sometimes I worry that by focusing on particular corporations or particular individuals, we miss the bigger picture, which is the, the power, the growing power of digital technology itself, whoever happens to be owning and controlling it at a particular time. But Facebook has been accused of aiding the genocide of the Rohingya in Myanmar, the spreading of misinformation in 2016 in the Philippines and U.S. elections, the Brexit referendum of bringing together violent right-wing extremists in the United States, and uh, of uh, failing to um, quell the QAnon conspiracy, uh, most recently uh, of helping foment the insurrection on January 6th. Yeah, that's right. And listen, you know, I'm, and yet I they did nothing illegal. Well, I mean, this is the point. Uh, the, the, you know, there are loads of books out there if you want to read about all of the, you know, allegedly terrible things that Facebook has done. I'm trying to be more constructive in my approach, which is to say, firstly, why is it that a company like Facebook is given the power and the ability to make these sorts of decisions? And I argue that, you know, as a society, as a free society, we ought to be uncomfortable with that. So the problem isn't necessarily just Facebook, but rather we've created a system in which Facebook and Facebooks, whatever comes next, are able to uh, exert the kind of power that you've just described with impunity. And the second thing is, you know, when we think about how to govern technology, how maybe how to regulate it, which is a, a lot of what my book, The Digital Republic, is about, it's important, again, not just to focus on a particular company, because then you're fighting the last war. You know, you're fighting the battles of the 2010s, whereas I'm interested in the 2020s and the 2030s and sometimes even beyond. So there's loads of examples from Facebook in my book. But what I don't want listeners to, to think is that this is a book about, you know, how awful Mark Zuckerberg or how awful Facebook are. The point that I make is that actually... We're here because of our own fault. We've allowed these systems of power to be built in society without appropriate accountability. Still, I want to stick with Facebook just a smidgen longer. In 2016, in an internal memo, Facebook executive Andrew Bosworth wrote, and I'm quoting, 
We connect people. That can be good if they make it positive. Maybe someone finds love. Maybe it even saves the life of someone on the brink of suicide. That can be bad if they make it negative. Maybe it costs a life by exposing someone to bullies. Maybe someone dies in a terrorist attack coordinated on our tools. But anything that allows us to connect more people more often is de facto good. So was he saying that maybe if somebody dies in a terrorist attack... Uh, that's acceptable? Uh, Didn't Zuckerberg distance himself on Facebook from those remarks? It's literally literally incoherent, isn't it, what he's just said? I mean, the the first two-thirds of it, I think everyone can accept. Sometimes connecting people is good. Sometimes connecting people is bad. But then, then to say de facto connecting people is good is obviously wrong. And the difficulty is he he's thinking like a business person, and for a, or at least he's thinking like a business person while perhaps trying to sound like a philosopher. But for a business person who's an executive at Facebook, it is obviously true that trying to connect more and more of the world is good because that grows the network, it grows the potential profitability of the company. But of course, for the rest of us who recognize that the implications of these networks, these platforms, uh, go far beyond the commercial interests of those who own and control them. I'm afraid the glib analysis that he presents, which I find very difficult to follow, uh, is not enough of a political philosophy to get by on. In the earliest days of cyberspace, wasn't power largely in the hands of libertarian-inclined technologists who knew how to code? When did that change? Well, there was definitely this idea, wasn't there, in the 90s and maybe the early noughties, that because the Internet was this decentralized technology and because it lay... It, it didn't inherently recognize national borders or sovereign authorities, that the world the world would become more like the technology. So the world would become more decentralized. The world would become less centered around the power of big corporations and governments. In reality, the opposite has turned out to be true. And the reason for that, I think, is reasonably clear. It's not just that technologies shape societies. They do a bit. But societies also shape technologies. Mm. And the Internet was born into a time where there were powerful nation states and there were powerful global corporations or at least global corporations that were growing in power. It was a good time to be a private corporation. And so the Internet has come to resemble the world that it was born into. Uh, It resembles it politically. It resembles it economically. So what I think you know, we have to move away from is some of the, I don't want to call it naivety, but perhaps some of the idealism of the 1990s, which says that if you just introduce a technology that is a certain way, then society will become a certain way too. That's not how the world works. In reality, there is a much more complex interplay between social conditions and new technologies. And I think that a lot of the theorizing before about, you know, even up to kind of 2016, uh, failed adequately to take it to take account of that. So are you saying that it's now in the hands of corporations and wealthy individuals who resist being regulated and tend to a kind of market individualism? That's exactly what I'm saying. I'm saying that increasingly the power that comes with digital technologies uh, is increasingly concentrated in in a relatively small group of hands, private corporations and governments who are enjoying the main benefits that technology brings. And my book is about, well, how can we make it a little bit more democratic? How can we make, how can we use technology to make society more just and more free? 
uh, and more democratic rather than just using it to make governments more powerful vis-a-vis their people and corporations more wealthy. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Jamie Suskind. We're talking about his latest book, The Digital Republic on Freedom and Democracy in the 21st Century, published by Pegasus Books. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. We're talking about something that is huge. Uh, You point out that it's predicted that the world will have 175 zettabytes of data by 2025. And if you downloaded that onto DVDs, the resulting stack of disks would stretch around the planet 222 times. How big is is a zettabyte? (laughs) A zettabyte is really, really, really big. I mean... These numbers can be kind of baffling. The the way I would put it is this. Increasingly, the data that we just shed by existing, you know, that that we allow to be gathered about ourselves, gives a picture of us or of people like us or of people with our characteristics, a picture that is more nuanced, more detailed, more precise, more valuable than anything that any human being has ever enjoyed in the past. So if you think of philosophers or priests or kings in the past who claim to understand the human condition, none of them understood it in the way that modern data allows us to be understood. And it follows that those who, well, it follows that we should be interested in how that data is used, how it is gathered, who holds it, and what use they make of it. Do they use it to influence or to manipulate? Do they use it to sell or to uh, encouraged to buy. These are questions, and I'm not saying they're inherently right or wrong answers to them, but these questions are political in nature. They're not just commercial. Hmm. Uh, has there been as much concern in the UK where you live as there's been in the United States? Yes. Uh, in fact, I would say significantly more, as reflected in the fact that you, the United States is the only country in the world which doesn't have omnibus data protection legislation at the national level. So basically in America, and I'm being a bit crude here, but basically if you gather data in a lawful way, there's almost no limit on what you can do with it, subject to certain special categories. Um, If you're in the private sector, that just isn't the case in, in the UK or in Europe. There are quite strict rules governing what may or may not be done with data that's been collected. And by the way, I think this is something that applies kind of across the tech spectrum. So I think that social media platforms in the United States enjoy a great deal more protection than they do in Europe and the United Kingdom. Um, I think that artificial intelligence is receiving a lot less regulatory scrutiny in the US than it is elsewhere. So I'm afraid the pattern is quite clear. Among the advanced democracies of the world, um, in America, I I, I would readily concede there's a lot of sound and noise about this, these kinds of issues. But when it comes to actual legislative or regulatory action, America is something of a laggard. Well, the media platforms employ uh, 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 one moderator for every 5,000 users. Would uh, it be better if they relied on algorithms? Well, I mean... (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, you can move on if that's a... No, no, I mean, I I understand why you're asking it. I mean, look, let me start at the end. I think we should require social media platforms to have reasonable and appropriate systems in place to meet certain certain social goals, right? So 
they're never going to be perfect because they're dealing with billions of bits of content a day. But by and large, social media platforms should be expected as a matter of law, not just kind of generosity. They should be expected to reduce things like foreign interference in the democratic process or revenge porn or online harassment. Hmm. But what a, what a reasonable and proportionate system looks like is going to differ from platform to platform and it's going to differ from time to time. And actually, I, you know, I'm quite a fan of the idea of setting targets for social media platforms and then letting the geniuses of these places work out themselves how to meet them. And sometimes it might mean more human moderators. Sometimes it might be targeted use of sophisticated machine learning algorithms. So the reason I paused when you asked the question is th there is a deeper question, which is what should we ask of social media platforms? And I think if we ask them to have reasonable or appropriate or proportionate systems in place, uh, we can expect a variety of human and machine solutions to the problems that we identify. You write that unlike in medicine, there are no mandatory ethical qualifications for working as a software engineer or technology executive, and there is no enforceable industry code of con conduct. Are you suggesting the development of a code, even a body of law that would protect individuals? Uh, would, would that involve government? Uh, yes, is the short answer, and uh, I don't think it's anomalous. Look, if you, if you look at other people in society who assume positions of social responsibility, doctors, lawyers, pharmacists, pilots, whoever in it, bankers, they don't just do their jobs and the rest of us kind of hope that they do them with integrity and with a sufficient degree of uh, capability. We apply regulations and standards to them. We require certain educational um, qualifications. We expect higher standards of integrity and honesty than ordinary business people. And when doctors or lawyers or whoever cross the line and break the rules, they can expect to suffer regulatory sanction. Are these systems perfect? No, of course they're not. Uh, but are they better than nothing? Yes, they are. And what I find strange is that, you know, you have to have you have more regulatory oversight if you run a pharmacy than if you run a social media platform with a billion users, which can affect freedom and democracy in countries around the world. Now, what I don't suggest is that we just transplant rules from other professional areas into the tech industry. What I am saying is that it is slightly weird that in an industry which has assumed an enormous degree of social power, that we don't have corresponding obligations like we do in other areas of the economy. But isn't a major problem in tech that uh, the line is rather blurry at times? There's the question of free expression and what constitutes transgressions against community standards? Well, yes, but obviously every, every professional set of professional obligations has gray lines. You know, lawyers and doctors, for instance, under the law of negligence, are expected to act with a reasonable level of competence for someone in their position. What is a reasonable level of competence? Well, there's no fixed answer to that. The law develops answers over time. So you can't legislate for every eventuality. I mean, you're right that when it comes to the governance of social media platforms, there are important considerations of free speech. But it cuts both ways. We, we have social media platforms which, if they wished to, could uh, diminish free speech, could crush it, could stifle it in ways that we would find repugnant. 
And we have no protection against that. So it's not just about leaving them alone to um, you know, impose their own, you know, leaving them alone as a kind of proxy for leaving speech alone. The social media companies already make decisions about free speech every single day. And they do that in the absence of any regulatory oversight whatsoever. And that seems strange to me. Didn't the Facebook whistleblower Francis Hargan say that only about 200 people in the whole world understand how its newsfeed algorithm chooses what to show you? Uh, she may well have said that. I mean, in general, and to be fair, you know, a lot of commercial industries, they're not wild about showing their secret source to the world at large, the Google algorithm. We kind of know how it works, but it's also largely secret. Um, it doesn't surprise me or even really offend me that... Uh, in the absence of regulation requiring them to have some transparency, these companies try to keep their commercial and technical secrets secret. Um, the problem, though, is, is if, you, if you do decide that you want them to adhere to certain standards, you need to have a way of checking whether they are adhering to those standards, which means that at some point that transparency is going to have to be compromised. But again, you know, that only reflects how other businesses and areas of the economy work, and you know, tech, tech isn't an exception or shouldn't be. Have companies sold data without permission? Uh, I, I know the, the big United... tech ones don't, but isn't there a thriving advertising ecosystem that does? Well, yeah. I mean, there's an. Uh, the question. I mean, when you say without permission, first of all, I'm sure. I'm sure all kinds of illegal activity takes place in the data market uh, without making allegations against any particular company. But we're also we're often faced with a little thing where we're told that if we want to proceed, we have to click on to something, and I am often uncomfortable with the thought of Well, ex exactly. And so your phrase, with permission, I mean, strictly formally, have you at some point maybe ticked a box consenting to 80 pages of legal jargon that you don't understand yeah. and haven't read? Yeah, we've all done that. And then you, um, you, then, and then you have to click on allow or don't allow. Right, but often, you know, often... I mean, I have a huge, you'll know from the book, I have an enormous beef against these, these kinds of contracts. I think the fact that we are asked to click these things is a joke. No one reads them. No one understands them. They don't redress the power imbalance between us and big tech companies. They just entrench it. And in fact, what those contracts do, rather than protect individuals, is that they, they give companies the right to do certain things, not most of the time, with your data. And that might be phrased really vaguely. So it might be phrased something like, we may sell your data to third parties. But you don't know who they're selling it to. You don't know what purpose it's going to be used for. And so have you given permission, perhaps formally, by ticking a box? But to me, that whole idea of permission is a fantasy. It's a fiction. And it's not an adequate regulatory mechanism. Do their algorithms discriminate on the basis of race, gender, and locale? Some, they... algorith some algorithms certainly do. So, you know, there are... You know, there are well-reported incidents of facial recognition hmm. systems which don't see the faces of people of color because the data on which they've been trained only contain faces of white people or voice recognition systems which don't hear the voices of women uh, because they've only been trained or they've been majority trained on the voices of men. There are... So what happens? Do they throw people off their platforms as a result? Well, uh, the systems that I'm talking about are not necessarily systems that are embedded into social media platforms, but they might be, for instance, I mean, discriminatory, the problem of discriminatory algorithms is not really just limited to platforms. 
Because if you think about the fact that algorithms are increasingly used to distribute things of value in society, so, you know, your access to a mortgage, your access to insurance, in some places, your access to criminal justice, the more of this stuff that is algorithmically determined, uh, the more likely it is or possible that you will be exposed to algorithmic discrimination of the kind that I've just described. So don't, don't, I mean, my, my sort of advice to listeners is don't think about this as just a kind of social media platform thing. As technology increasingly surrounds us in all of our day-to-day -day actions and interactions, the risks of discrimination against us multiply rapidly. It's been pointed out that as fast as policy in one area seems to get nailed down, as we saw with vaccine misinformation, others like facial recognition and machine learning pop up. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a nightmare. It's really, really difficult to regulate fast-moving technologies. Um, but that doesn't mean we make it easy for ourselves. We make it harder for ourselves than we need to. And some of the kind of policy ideas that I talk about in the book are all about trying to develop a, an approach to governance and, re and regulation that, that is less backward-looking and less responsive and less reactive and less sluggish and slow. Is it possible that some of these problems might just be insoluble? Yes, uh, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try and tackle them. So, for instance, it's really hard to tax multinational corporations. That's a problem that countries have all over the world because they might not be domiciled in the place where they're doing business for the purposes of tax. Does that mean we don't try to tax them? No, it doesn't. It means that there is a constant ongoing process whereby governments try to find ways of taxing them and businesses try to find ways of avoiding it. There is the never United going States, to be... that means uh, often going offshore. Yeah, well, exactly. But, but you know, maybe one day we'll find uh, an international solution to that or there will be clever and more innovative domestic solutions to it. The point I'm making is the fact that it's really difficult to tax multinational corporations doesn't mean the businesses basically just... Mm rub their hands and sorry that doesn't doesn't mean the government's just kind of wash their hands of the job they're always trying to find ways of doing it and businesses are trying to find ways of, of avoiding it the same is going to be true of regulating tech you know there will be challenges it will be difficult but that's not a reason not to try and often by trying we'll be able to find solutions which are not perfect but are better than doing nothing you're listening to wbai new york 99.5 fm and streaming live at wbai.org I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Jamie Suskind. If you signed up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, The Digital Republic on Freedom and Democracy in the 21st Century. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2, WBAI.org. The number, the telephone number, 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of London Lopate at Large, and we thank you very much. And return now to Jamie Suskind, um, his book, The Digital Republic on Freedom and Democracy in the 21st Century, is published by Pegasus Books. He's a barrister in London and the author of 
um, some other uh, award-winning book, Future Politics, Living Together in a World Transformed by Tech, which received the Estral Global Issues Distinguished Book Prize in 2019. Um, uh, and uh, the book that we're discussing deals with uh, things that I'm sure uh, many of us have been a bit curious about, but really haven't known, haven't understood very much about. I'm so glad that you've written this book to lay some of these things out. Um, you argue that we need a digital republic to protect society from the harms caused by these companies. How would that work? Well, Thank you again for, for kindly having me on the radio. And again, th thank you for your kind words about the book. This really is a book for any concerned citizen who, who wants to understand how technology is changing the world and how we could change technology to make, to make it work for us, to make it improve the quality of our democracy and increase the amount of freedom we have rather than eroding democracy and making us less free. And really, that's the essence of what I describe as the digital republic. I take the traditional idea of the republic and of republicanism, that's small r republicanism, that's not, I'm not talking about the Republican Party mm -hmm. in the United States, I'm talking about the ancient philosophy of republicanism, which goes back thousands of years, which basically says that we should never be subject to unaccountable powers that we can't control. So Republicans oppose the idea of kings, even when the kings happened to be nice. Republicans didn't argue for better bosses. They argued for more, more workplace rights. Republicans, and I, and I stress again, I'm not talking about the Republicans of the Republican Party in the US. I'm talking about smaller Republicans throughout history. Republicans didn't argue for kinder husbands. They argued for equal rights for men and women. Uh, they didn't argue for nicer slave masters, they argued for the abolition of slavery. And I'm a digital Republican. I don't argue for Mark Zuckerberg to be wiser or better. I argue for laws which make people like Mark Zuckerberg or people in his position act responsibly in accordance or in a way that's appropriate for someone with the power they hold. And so the book is full of ideas and policies and um, the path to what I call the digital republic which is a world that is freer and more democratic than the one we currently live in. Of course, now the, the, the big name in the news is Elon Musk. Uh, now, to do what you're suggesting, would we create mini public citizen assemblies, for example, where a small but representative group of the population is brought together uh, and given briefings about uh, difficult choices to be made and allowing them to create public options? Right. So one of the questions that I ask in the book is how can we make technology more democratic? How can we make it more responsive to the norms and values of the people who have to live under it? And obviously, you know, there are traditional democratic routes like Congress and legislation. But there are also uh, there are also parts of the democratic arts that we don't try enough and we don't use enough. So recently in Ireland, for instance, they gathered a number of random people, a bit like for jury service, together to deliberate about a couple of thorny issues in Irish politics. One was same-sex marriage. The other was the legalization of abortion. And what you do in those circumstances, what they did in Ireland, is you give, you give people the chance to be the best possible citizens they can be. 
So you give them access to information. You give them you give them time to consider. You allow them to deliberate and discuss with each other. You give them access to experts who argue one side or the other. And then at the end, these randomly selected citizens come up with proposals which may or may not be binding. But, it, the, but, but, but are sometimes surprising. For example, in Ireland, they help frame the questions in the referendums about same-sex marriage and abortion. And right now, uh, Ireland uh, is, is very liberal in those terms, a, a Catholic country with abortion. Right. So what's really interesting about, about the idea of these mini-publics is they seem to work. They seem to produce outcomes which are intelligent, uh, characterized by compromise, and which society at large tends to be okay with accepting, even though they didn't themselves vote for it. Because it's recognized that this is a particular form of democratic process, not one which involves everyone voting, but one which involves a selection of people, a random selection, who are given the chance to be the best possible citizens they can be. And this kind of mechanism is being used more and more around the world. And I, and I think we could use it in digital technology to tackle kind of difficult problems or difficult questions of public policy. I'm not saying it's a, a solution to everything. What I am saying is it's a form of the democratic art that we've neglected. It's thousands of years old, and I think it could do with a bit of a revival. I just received this notice uh, about Boris Johnson's uh, farewell speech. Uh, and since he mentions Twitter in it, I thought I would quote some of it. Is that okay? Yeah, please do. I, I haven't heard this yet, so I'm hearing it for the he first said, time. I want, to, I want to use last few seconds to give some words of advice to my successor. Number one, stay close to the Americans. Stick up for the Ukrainians. Stick up for freedom and democracy. Remember, above all, it's not Twitter that counts. I'm not, I'm not sure I understand what it's not Twitter that counts me even me. Well, listen, I mean, let me say these sound like uh, wise words from a man who has not governed wisely and has been turfed out. I've uh, had the odd experience of actually interviewing him before he became oh. prime minister. I'm not going to talk about my take on him at the time. <laughs> well, that's very uh, that's very politic of you. <laughs> I think what, what the prime minister was saying, if I understand him correctly, is that he, he believes that there is this kind of, um, and he's not necessarily wrong about this, there is this kind of Twitter community of people who are super obsessed with politics and talk about it the whole time. And that community consists of a lot of journalists and politicians. But that if you only follow that community, you get a kind of warped perspective of politics. You, you get a very narrow and cliquey perspective of politics. And I think what the prime minister was saying is, mm. Politics is much bigger than what happens to happen on a social media platform. He's right and he's wrong about that, because right up until the day that he was booted out, he was saying this is just a problem on Twitter. And of course, it turned out that it wasn't just a problem on Twitter. The country was outraged. Well, you also uh, mentioned that uh, you argue that Donald Trump had it coming when he was banned from Twitter. Uh, but that penalty can come down on anyone who displeases an administrator or an owner. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, Leonard, that's actually the point I make. I, I don't say that Donald Trump had it coming. I say that, uh, you know, some people will think that he had it coming. Some people will think that it's actually kind of wrong that a private company can remove a head of state from a very important channel of democratic communication. I actually think both of those positions are respectable. 
the, the, the difficulty I have is that I don't like the fact that decisions like that are basically left to the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world. I, I, think, I, I think that's too much power. My guest on today's Leonard Lopit at Large is Jamie Suskind. His latest book, The Digital Republic on Freedom and Democracy in the 21st Century, is published by Pegasus Books. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at, 99, at, at WBAI.org. Um, haven't the three choices for dealing with these companies proven to be problematic? It didn't work when we left them alone. Uh, what about passing laws to, to control them? Is that a reasonable goal, considering our current political <laughs> systems? Well, Leonard, I'm not going to lie and tell you that I have the solution to the problems that are currently plaguing American democracy. Um, it is certainly true that if things carry on like this, you know, uh, the United States is going to struggle to legislate for some of the big challenges that are coming over the horizon. And that includes digital technology, but it also includes loads of other challenges. So uh, I, I don't shrink from saying that until and unless uh, the US political system is restored to some kind of sanity, uh, problems like the ones that I talk about in my book are going to be very, very difficult to solve. That said, a lot of the challenges raised by digital technology don't easily fall into talking points for one party or another. Quite a lot of them are kind of what you would call bipartisan issues, issues where there ought to be room for agreement between both sides of the very divided political system that you have. Um, but listen, I, I'm not naive about it. I recognize that the digital republic that I would love to see in the United States can only be made a reality if American democracy fulfills a little bit more of its promise. Um, I, I have some criticisms in the book of how digital technology has been regulated to the extent that it has for the last 20 years or so. But really, the book is forward looking. I'm trying to I'm trying to uh, come up with ideas for the next 20 years. Well, uh, it's been pointed out that uh, much of what happened on January 6th in this country uh, was uh, was uh, done with the help of digital technology. People were invited to come to Washington, told what to do, what to bring, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, should we have been uh, censoring that or, or uh, monitoring it more? Well, listen, no question, digital technology plays a part in kind of febrile political uprisings uh, of the kind that you saw on January the 6th. I mean, that's, that's, that's true in America and it's true in elsewhere. Indeed, you know, in some places we sort of welcome it. You know, when the Arab Spring first happened, people said this is this, these technologies are these great liberators. They allow people to organize themselves outside of the power of the state. And, and there is, you know, there is a degree of truth in that. I think, it, I think you know, again, without plunging too too far into America's current political problems, I think it is super easy and wrong to blame technology alone for the problems of division, the problems of radicalization, the problems of, even of misinformation that exist in parts of American political culture. Um, empirical studies show, for instance, that broadcast media uh, has a much more polarizing effect than social media, which might be counterintuitive but is apparently true. Uh, so I, I don't think we should let other, you know, 
people and forms of power off the hook either. Should we be censoring social media platforms? I, I obviously, I mean, my personal view is that you never want the government directly censoring anyone. So I don't want the state involved, or, you know, the, the government, as you call it in the US, uh, ferreting around in the speech of people online. I think that's a recipe for disaster. What I think you could have, though, is a requirement that social media platforms have reasonable and proportionate systems in place, systems of their choosing, as long as they can show them to be reasonable and proportionate, for the minimization of the risk of this kind of thing happening. You're never going to prevent it entirely, but you should require social media platforms to make sure they have systems in place to prevent, for instance, violent insurrection being organized through their platforms. What about the other side? Should an outside organization be able to overrule the company's decision to remove an account for what it sees as undesirable behavior? It depends what you mean by uh, an outside organization. Do I think well, that... You, well, you originally suggested citizens groups. Is would, uh, How would that work? Would people be... Well, no. I, what I don't... Again, what I don't suggest is that outside organizations should be involved in specific decisions about, you know, Jamie's been banned from Facebook or Leonard's been banned from Twitter. Uh, what I do suggest is that the, the, where decisions like that really impact someone's life, there should be an external, even if it's a quick and dirty, and some external form of independent appeal uh, to someone who doesn't have skin in the game. That's not quite the same as having you know the government step in and overturn it or a citizens group in, step in and overturn it. You know What I think is that there should be due process for particularly important algorithmic determinations and other kinds of digital determinations. So I would like to see more kind of accountability of that sort. And actually that's that's what the European Commission is currently uh, looking to implement in the European Union. Should we try once again to let users decide by a vote only this time without any preconditions? No, because it, th th what happens on Facebook doesn't just affect users of Facebook. What happens on a social media platform doesn't just affect the users of that platform. So a system which just gave users the right to set the rules might offend broader principles of justice. It might lead to risks. It might lead to... So, for instance, you know, there are certain social media platforms which are basically set up for the purpose of extremist conversation. The users on those platforms are not going to vote for reasonable systems to be put in place to prevent the spread of extremist and violent ideology. That is going to have to be a requirement that is imposed from outside uh, by the law. So I don't think it's just a matter of, I mean, I would also say, you know, <laughs> people are busy. I don't think people want to vote on the rules of Facebook. They expect the democratic process to regulate powerful industries uh, in a way that is appropriate. In the same way that, you know, when I walk into a building, I don't expect to have to vote on whether I think it is safe or not, or whether it is structurally sound. I expect that to have been regulated and taken care of by someone else. But when we see some of the things that uh, have happened in the past, like QAnon uh, claiming that a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C. was uh, engaging in uh, abuse of children uh, and inviting people to attack it, uh, a man then shows up with a gun. Um, was there no way to have prevented that sort of thing from happening or do is it always ex post facto no there are definitely ways of preventing it from happening or at least not preventing but reducing the risk of it the reason this stuff 
spreads faster on some platforms than others is that some platforms are designed in a way which makes the spread of dangerous, mad misinformation more difficult. And some platforms are engineered in a way that amplifies that content, that sends it out to the world because it's, it appears to be popular or addictive. And the fact that some platforms do it better than others shows that there is a sliding scale of responsibility here. Platforms can do better. It's just a matter of whether they are incentivized to do so. We only have a few more minutes left. Uh, are there other things that you feel uh, that we should be discussing, important things uh, that we haven't yet addressed? Well, listen, my message to your, to your listeners is simply this. For a long time, we have, all of us, regarded digital technology primarily from the perspective of consumers. You know, this looks fun. This looks interesting. How much does it cost? Where can I get it? And that's completely understandable because digital technology tends to be presented to us in, in, in the commercial and market environment. But if you accept what I argue, which is that actually digital technologies carry an enormous amount of power, that they have the ability to affect the quality of our democracy, that they can make our society more or less free, that they can make our society more or less just. If you accept these points, if you accept that the digital is political, then we need to start looking at digital technologies, not just as consumers anymore, but as citizens. We need to bring the same indignant scrutiny that Americans are famous for bringing to their elected officials uh, and to other forms of concentrated power to the tech industry to make sure that we don't just accept what we're told and that we don't just believe that we have to live with things that they are. I want to see a world in which the awesome power of digital technology, which I love, by the way, I want to see a world where it is harnessed for the good of everyone, where it makes us more free, more democratic, where it doesn't just ultimately damage society, but in pursuit of the commercial interests of those who happen to own and control it. This, to me, is the great, or at least one of the great political struggles of our time. And, and with this book and with this interview, I hope to be, a, to be kind of contributing to the call to arms in respect of it. Well, I do feel I have a little bit of power and the fact that I just keep on clicking the delete buttons. <laughs> well, you keep on clicking those, Leonard. I mean, one of the, I have to say that, you know, I quite often asked by interviewers, you know, what can I do to protect myself? What can I do to protect my kids? I'm afraid there is a little bit of a fallacy here, which is I, I'm not sure that we are or should be the last and first line of defense against digital technology. We're always being asked to protect ourselves as individuals, but in reality, we need to come together and protect ourselves collectively through the medium of law because, you know, divided, there's very little that people can do to confront the awesome power of digital technology. Well, since we, in this country anyway, we can't get members of the political parties to agree on anything, I can't imagine any proposal that would get through Congress. <laughs> That's not a very... Uh, optimistic way to end the interview, Leonard. I mean, listen. But isn't that uh, true? Maybe things will change in the near future. But well, maybe they will. We have become I mean, more and more polarized in this country. I don't know whether the well, same what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Are we just are we just going to give up and say American democracy is finished and yes. let's stop let, let's stop trying to uh, let's stop trying to solve society's big problems? Or are Americans going to look overseas at Europe? Are they going to look at the United Kingdom? Are they going to look at places that are taking action, that are doing a decent job and say there's no reason why they, you know, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, are these countries inherently 
better than the United States? Of course they're not. The United States is going through its own political crisis, but I, I refuse to allow that to make me give up on the, on the hope that the greatest republic in the world can actually pass some laws to protect its citizens once in a while. Well, you have lived here as well. You have fellowship from Harvard, haven't you? I sure have, yeah. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Uh, I've been speaking with Jamie Suskind, whose latest book is The Digital Republic on Freedom and Democracy in the 21st Century. It's published by Pegasus Books. What a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is Leonard at large. Leonard Lopate at WBAI.org. I'm embarrassed to say all those things considering what we've just been discussing. Uh, Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. and to help us do things like pay for our rent and pay for our, our transmission tower. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling... 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and then the number 2 WBAI.org. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique, in-depth content information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, Anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of London Lopate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book that we've been discussing, Digital, uh, the, the Digital Republic on Freedom and Democracy in the 21st Century by Jamie Suskind. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, and we'll say thanks you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a WBAI buddy for $10 a month or more. I've been speaking to a guest in England. Now, in England... Uh, there is a license fee for the, the BBC. Whether you listen to it or not, you still have to pay to keep that going. We don't do that. We hope that you um, will come through for us because BAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to Let It Lopate at Large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do in the show by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with a tax-deductible support. And we hope that you can join us tomorrow. My guest will be Paisley Curra discussing his new book, Sex is as sex does. Hope to see you then.